It is so good to be back after being gone for three Sundays. And I, as Kyle said, we want to thank you for praying for us. Our trip was just amazing. Actually, there were a lot of pieces to it. But what was amazing to me uh, was the commitment uh, the Kenyans have to worship. The commitment they have uh, to pray and to pray at length. Their, their incredible commitment to sing. Man, do they sing. And their commitment to come together and to, to study God's word. You know, Africa has become the center of Christianity now because the church is exploding. And even in the largest, most sophisticated capital city of Nairobi, I, I was struck by the fact by what a relational-based culture Kenya is. And how love flourishes and relationships are, are, are primary is a beautiful thing to uh, behold. I also want you to know that our missionaries, uh, Dr. Steve and Sandy Morad, Dr. Judy Fry, uh, Josephine, the Kenyan National Ministry, we just, or uh, uh, a woman that we just picked up uh, a couple of years ago to support, to support full time, as well as Scott and Barb Harbor, they're just doing incredible things. I mean, amazing things. I don't, I don't have the time to tell you how amazing Steve Morad has been teaching at the premier theological seminary in Kenya, and he's been at this for 45 years. And then we had a chance to engage deeply in this partnership our global team, our wonderful global team has created between World Relief Kenya and Parkland's Baptist Church, this huge Baptist church in Nairobi where I preached the first Sunday I was there and where Lon said to all of you a couple weeks ago after the video, I looked totally wiped out. <laughs> and I was. And the, this partnership isn't about the, the three organizations. It's about the three organizations coming together to reach the oldest tribal group in the world. And as Kyle said, the, uh, the most remote, least accessible place, one of the most remote, uh, least accessible places on the planet. And, uh, and I've been to the Amazon jungle. I've been to Siberia. I get difficult. And yet what we're doing there, this partnership has come together, is just so multidimensional, so multifaceted, it's just incredible. Let me illustrate it. Um, we were in four large off-road vehicles. There were about 24 of us, six of us from uh, Wheaton Bible Church, so the rest Africans, leaders in the churches, leader of the country, leader of world relief, and on and on. And we stopped at this dam, and everybody said, okay, let's get out. We want you to see this dam. And what they really meant is, Rob, we want you to see this dam. And so I'm walking around, I'm looking at it, and then I don't know if it was Kyle or somebody else uh, said, hey, come over here and look at this. And on the side of this dam, in the middle of one of the least accessible places in the world. There's camels going by, there's goats going by, malnourished people everywhere. There's this concrete plaque on this concrete um, uh, dam, and it says, in essence, thanks to Wheaton Bible Church, to World Relief, to Parkland's Baptist Church for building this dam. And I got to tell you, man, I broke and I wept. To think about the extent of the global reach of this church. Every year as part of our global budget, we are spending totally over $150,000 a year in Kenya. 
And the dam has been one of the pieces of that. And now one has become six dams. God is doing amazing things around the world. And I am so thankful for this church's historic commitment. Now, having said that, let's go to Galatians. Uh, turn to the book of Galatians in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3. Uh, Galatians is a little bitty letter that the apostle Paul wrote about two years after his missionary journey to Galatia. And the Galatians are a, a number of churches in the region that was once called Galatia. Now it's modern Turkey. And Paul writes this letter in order to take head-on theological controversy. The fact that these young Christians, Christians just a year or two in these Galatian churches are suddenly abandoning the faith. They're going after a, a different gospel that's not the gospel. Now, I want to tell you on the front end, our passage here in chapter 3 is not easy. It's going to take some work. So I want you to fasten your seatbelt and I, I want you to put on your thinking cap. It's going to take work just like a symphony takes work. Just like reading a good book, say Hamilton takes work. And just like fixing your car takes work. But here with Galatians, man, is it worth it. You see, the Bible, God didn't give you the Bible to satisfy your curiosity or to answer all your questions. God gave you the Bible, his word, to change your life. And that's the approach we're going to take today. That's the approach we're taking in this series. So let's begin with chapter 3 and verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Now, when you read human covenant, I want you to think human will, like your aunt's or your, your parents' will. The last will and testament, that's, what, uh, that's the analogy Paul is using here. And Paul is saying, once that will has been established, you know, it's binding here in the United States, especially after the person that created the will has died. It's unchanging. It's permanent. It's not revocable. And Paul is saying the same is true with the promises God made to Abraham. Let's pick it up in verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but to into your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now the promises are the content of the will, the desires, the intent of the person that created the will. And what we are told here is those promises were first made to Abraham at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, so don't miss this because Paul says they're ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So what this means, and sometimes this is hard for us, the Old Testament is a one story and the New Testament another story. No, the Bible is one story based on one promise. And the center is one person, one hero, Jesus Christ. And everywhere you go into the Bible, you bump into the man. And that's what Paul's saying about Genesis chapter 12. Let's read beginning in verse 17. 
What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later, that is after the promise, does not set aside the covenant, think the will previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise, the will. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now, what Paul is saying here is simply that the Old Testament law that came 430 years after this promise to Abraham doesn't in any way negate that promise. You can't negate a will because the promise of God is permanent. So the question becomes, okay, then what in the world, Paul, is the purpose of the law, this Old Testament law? And let's pick it up now in verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. Now the passage doesn't say it, but the mediator is Moses. And therefore you have our, our, our two things being talked about given to two uh, persons. The promise to Abraham and the law given to Moses here called the mediator. Now let's go on, verse 20. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Now this is a complicated verse. It's a little verse, but it's complicated. God is one probably means don't pit Abraham against Moses. Now let's keep going. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But if scripture, now here he means the Old Testament law, has locked up everything under the control of the dominion of sin, and it has, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I'll come back to this. Now here... Paul is addressing the most crucial question in life. How is a person made right with God? How does a Christian stay right with God? What is the relationship of the law to the promise, the law to the non-Christian, the law to the Christian as we live our lives before God? Is life performance based in a matter of the law? Or is it promise-based in a matter of faith? Now, Paul, I, I want you to understand, would, would say to us, this isn't an academic thing. We know this in American history. Because for the last 200 years, most, most religious denominations in the United States have answered this issue by saying, well, the way we approach God is based on performance. It's some faith and then some keeping the law. And it's a mix, and that's a law-based approach. Now think about it today. We live in an increasingly irreligious culture. And sadly and, and, and tragically, most Americans, even many of us as Christians in the church, think life, think gaining acceptance, Gaining acceptance with God is a function of our performance. And when we live a performance-based life, you know what happens? We struggle with guilt over here. We struggle with despair. We struggle with depression. We struggle with worry. 
And here on the other end, we also struggle with self-righteousness, with pride, with indifference. Man, I'm just going to live my life. Don't bug me with the details. Don't talk to me about God. Where the Africans are a relational-based culture, here in the United States we're a performance-based culture, and I want you to know that sabotages how we approach God. And what does Paul say? Paul says, no, a thousand times no. It isn't number one, believing in Jesus, number two, obeying the law, and then number three, you're saved. No, it's number one, believing in Jesus, number two, you will be saved, and number three, then you will want to obey the law. That order is critical. As a matter of fact, Paul says this isn't an intramural debate. This isn't just a matter of theological nuance. No, we're talking here two different religions, two different gospels, two different paradigms, two different ways to approach life, worldviews, and the one leads to hell and the other leads to heaven. We can't get this wrong. And amazingly, what I find so amazing here is Paul bases his argument that salvation is by grace on Abraham. In other words, he goes to the Old Testament to prove a New Testament truth that the Galatians were abandoning. So let's look at these two sections. Let's start with the first paragraph, 15 through 18, where Paul is arguing that the law doesn't cancel the promises of God. So we've got to ask a couple of questions. Well, what are the promises uh, made to Abraham that Paul is referring to? Well, according to Genesis chapter 12, the promise was to make Abraham a father of many uh, nations, that Abraham's descendants would enjoy the land, the land of Israel. And that there would be so many descendants that they would bless the nations. But there's also a second thing going on. Because look at verse 16. Paul says the word seed is singular, not plural, Because it points to Christ. It points to Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus at the very beginning of the Bible. And for those of you, and there will be some of you here, uh, that wrestle with the reliability of the Bible. And I wrestled with the reliability of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, for years. I want you to notice the confidence Paul has in what we call the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Old Testament. Paul bases his entire argument on one word, on a singular versus a plural. Paul could not have more confidence in the historic reliability of the Old Testament. And so what Paul is saying then uh, about these two promises, or this one promise to Abraham, is it has two fulfillments. One a largely physical fulfillment through Abraham, the other a cosmic spiritual fulfillment through Jesus Christ. So as Paul uses promise here, promise is code 
uh, for salvation by grace. It's called for redemption and restoration that come through the life and the death of Jesus Christ. That's why he names Jesus as the seed. Now, I've got to slow down here, and I've got to go back to the book of Genesis because there's this incredible story that illustrates this, that is at the root of this for Abraham. And actually, I want you to know, I think it's one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. And I'm not alone in that. It's one of the most important passages because it illustrates a salvation is not by the law, but by grace, even in the Old Testament. And I would go so far as to say that if you do not understand this story, you really are at risk to not understanding the Old Testament. So the story takes place in Genesis 15. Genesis 15. And God and Abraham are having a discussion, can you imagine? And they're outside under the beautiful Mediterranean night sky. And God says to Abraham, uh, hey, buddy, as numerous as these stars are that you can see, so will be your descendants. That's God's promise to Abraham. But Abraham falters. Abraham is skeptical. Abraham is unbelieving, just like you and I tend to be. And he asks God for a sign. Now, this human tendency to falter is why we take our values, our new values, so seriously here at Wheaton Bible Church. And our second value is we aspire, we long to be a people to, to create a culture that where the Holy Spirit leads, we will follow. Where the Holy Spirit leads, we will follow. We will not falter. We'll do hard things. We'll take risks. Anyway, because Abraham is faltering, God says, okay, yes, I'll give you a sign. And he tells Abraham to go get five animals, a cow, a goat, a bull, and a dove and a pigeon. And I didn't realize until studying this passage that there's a difference between a dove and a pigeon. Did you know that? Well, you're smarter than I am. And then Abraham, knowing what's going on, because this is a cultural custom, is Abraham takes those five animals and he cuts them in half and puts one column over here and the other column over here and, and, and they're a couple of feet apart. Then one of the most amazing things in the Old Testament happens. Look at Genesis 15, verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch are God. Representations of the presence of God who passes through the pieces. But this is all wrong. This is all wrong because it's so very countercultural. Because the custom was for both parties that are entering into this promise, to the, the, this covenant, both walk through the pieces to symbolize, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may it be done to me as it has been done to these animals. Ancient custom. And yet here in Genesis 15 and 17, only God walks through these pieces. To demonstrate that the promise is completely on him. 
that God alone will bring it to pass, that God alone will fulfill it. And frankly, what Abraham does or doesn't do does not matter at all. It's grace. Now, let me illustrate this. Let's say you have an aunt, a wealthy aunt, and she knows you're having some financial issues. And so she says, hey, man, I love you. You've been a great nephew, and um, I, I just love being close to you. And so I, I'm uh, telling you at the end of this week, I'm giving you $5,000. Now, what do you have to do? All you have to do is believe it and receive it, Right? That's what we call a promise agreement. But if on the other hand, your aunt says to you, man, I love you and I want to give you $5,000, but here's what you need to do. I need you to come over my home every night for the next six months and read to me for three hours. That's not a promise agreement. That's a law agreement. Because in a promise agreement, it's all on your aunt. But in a law agreement, it's on your aunt. But it's also, big time, on you. When God alone walks through these pieces, uh, the smoking pot, the, the blazing torch, he says, this is a promise agreement. Uh, uh, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But I am giving it to you by grace. And so what we have here is a vivid Old Testament picture that salvation, restoration, redemption is by grace, not by works. So I want to say to you this morning as strongly as I can, stop trying to justify yourself. Stop trying to justify yourself before God. Not even the Old Testament taught that. It's grace. It's not law. I'll tell you a story. Eight, nine days ago when we were leaving Turkana, middle of nowhere, uh, we gathered about 30 of us around this campfire. And uh, the leaders had prepared goats for us to eat. And uh, we've been eating goat meat for about seven days in a row. And goat meat is really tough. I'll come back to that. And, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, 45 minutes into this, after, and we're all talking and having a great time, taking in the stars. And um, the, one of the leaders comes up to me, and he gives me a slab of ribs of goat meat that's like this. And then he says, because you're our elder, uh, I was hoping that meant important, but I think it had a reference to my age. <laughs> he said, it's our custom that you eat this. And he said something about eating a hole in it as uh, some, some kind of blessing, but I didn't catch all that. Now, as I said, goat meat is very difficult to eat, so what we've kind of learned is you have to eat around the edges. You kind of have to nibble. Because there's so many bones, there's so many tendons, and it's just very, very difficult. And I, and I forgot about eating the whole. Actually, there was no way I could eat a whole, I thought. And so then uh, eventually, after about 30 minutes of nibbling on this huge slab of, of goat meat, I put it down in the dirt under my chair and put my foot on it. And then the guy came back. 
And he said, did you eat a hole in it? And I said, no. And he said, oh, because you as the leader, it's our custom that you eat a hole in the middle of the slab as a symbol, as a sign of blessing, of God's blessing. And the hole means the rain can come down and the vegetation can grow up. And I thought, oh, oh, I created an international incident. <laughs> and now it's not going to rain in Turkana and people are going to starve and it's all on me. What a pathetic person I am. No. Who walked through the pieces? God and God alone. Not Abraham, not you or me, not anybody else. So what we have in Genesis 15 and verse 17 is this incredible picture of the unmerited, active, uh, unilateral, saving, forgiving love of God. Abraham was faltering. Abraham was unbelieving. Abraham asked for a sign. Abraham wouldn't eat a hole in the center of the meat. And God made a promise. Worldwide redemption, restoration, that is irrespective of background, culture, education, ethnicity. And that has nothing to do with you and me. And so our failure to follow the directions, our inability to, to live the kind of life we all want to live, our, our, our greed, our lust, our, our um, anger, our, our self-centeredness will never, ever thwart the promises of God. God walked through the pieces. So stop trying to justify yourself by your performance, even you Christians. Look at verse 22. What's the last word in verse 22? The last word is believe. The promise is for those who believe. And now let me drive this home. We tend to think, especially when we're going through adversity, especially when the lights go low and it's dark, and maybe it's financial, uh, maybe it's a marriage issue, a kid issue, a, a friend issue, a, a health issue. But anyways, in those, these moments, and I see this over and over, when we're facing acute adversity, we tend to think to ourselves, man, if I just pray more, if I just do more, if I just believe more, I... I can get my way out of this. And I want to say to you, that is the prosperity gospel and it is not the gospel at all. Not in any way. Uh, let me illustrate this. If you're about to fall off a cliff and as you're starting to fall, you notice a branch right there, how much faith does it take to be saved by the branch? Only enough to grab it. Only the faith of a mustard seed. You see, the issue isn't the strength of your faith. The issue is the strength of the branch. And God, God alone, walked through the pieces. And so, to come to God... To walk with God, all you need is nothing. 
Yet we always try to bring something. Okay, God, you know, look at what I've done. Hey, God, what about this? Look at, you know, this. Look what I've, uh, look at my generosity on and on and on. But I want to say to you this morning, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not two different stories. But from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, salvation, spiritual growth is always by faith. And this side of the cross, faith in Jesus Christ. It's verse 22, believe. Now I want to say two things about this second section, beginning in verse 19 through verse 22, where Paul addresses this question, well, if the law doesn't supersede the promise, then what in the world is the point of the law? And Paul answers first in verses 19 and 20, where he says the purpose of the law is to expose the sinfulness of our hearts. Paul says in verse 19, look at the three words, because of transgressions. The purpose of the law is to show our transgressions, to show our sin. The law was never, ever given to bestow salvation or to offer some sort of merit-based approach to God, but to show us we cannot save ourselves because our sin is too pervasive. I mean, think about the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law doesn't say, uh, obey this one thing and then you're cool. No, the law says, obey all the dietary regulations. You know, obey the feasts, obey the festivals, obey the sacrifices, obey every word in the law, especially the Ten Commandments, which have not only an external component, but an internal component. And when you look at the law together, the point, the purpose of the law, and this is what Paul is saying is that we will never be able to keep it, and we need to see that and live that. God gave you the law to show you the sinfulness of your heart, uh, to show you that sin has damaged every aspect of your personhood. Now, the point isn't you can't do good things. The point is you never do good things with completely pure motives because our hearts are polluted fountains tainted with toxins of pride, self-righteousness, fear, worry, guilt. And then second, according to the last two verses, verses 21 and 22, Paul tells us the second purpose of the law is to point us to Christ. Now, some years back, now you Chicago Cub fans are going to love this. You Sox fans, um, I'm asking ahead of time for your forgiveness. But some years back, the Chicago Cubs traded for a man by the name of Vance Law, and they started Law at third base. Then a couple months later, they retired, uh, acquired a, a player by the name of Mark Grace, and they started him at first base. And so there you had it, right on the Cubs infield, the two, two corners. Yeah, you're getting it, Law and Grace. And they didn't oppose each other, they worked together. That's Paul's point in verse 21. Law and grace aren't opposed to each other, they work together. Uh, because they're, they're teammates because the law shows us the, the damage of sin in our lives. And in doing so, it points us to the wonder of Christ's love, his beauty. Do you know, let me talk about worry for a second. Do you know that worry is a form of pride? Now, this has been helpful to me when I worry, and I tend to worry a lot about different things. 
It's a form of pride because it's our desire to try to control outcomes, to control our lives, to control the people around us. So we worry. We worry about this. It's performance-based Christianity. It's really trying to keep the law. But God's promise isn't just one of forgiveness. It's one of life. He uses the term life in verse 21. In other words, it's all about personal heart transformation from the inside that we might be conformed, as Paul says in Romans, to the image of his son. And so what Paul is saying when he talks about the promise, I want you to understand, is that the promise is the only path to freedom in life. Freedom from worry. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from our arrogance. You see, if you believe that you must be good to merit approval, to to win God's approval, to justify your existence, whatever God you believe in, you know what? You're going to live a life of image management. And you're going to be concerned, consumed with yourself and how you appear. And along the way, you will stop denying the sinfulness of your heart. Because you're pretending. And you've got to manage your image. Eugene Peterson in his book on Galatians points out that for several years... Among the apostles, the first couple of years, Judas was the man. Think about this. He was anointed the treasure of the apostles. That's a position of esteem. He was obviously intelligent. He was obviously astute. And in contrast to Judas and and kind of his eminence, there was Peter who was a bumbling fool. Open mouth, insert foot. I suffer from that disease. And uh, Judas was steady, Uh, Peter was not steady, Peter was all over the place, yet over time, it reversed, and Judas became the byword for betrayal, and Peter became one of the uh, most beloved and esteemed men in all of human history, yet today, and and man, I I don't want to be harsh here because this is so tragic. Today, our culture follows Judas. And what I mean by that is that we follow, we give ourselves to position and power and wealth and to appearance. And we do everything we can to keep it at a distance, to defend ourselves uh, against any sort of failure. But it doesn't work. Men and women, you students, it just doesn't work. Judas' suicide is a parody, a tragic commentary on our addiction to success, our performance orientation. As Chesterton once said, nothing fails like success. 
Nothing fails like success. Why is that? Uh, because success causes us to deny the deeper issues of our human heart, the deeper dimensions of our heart. And so Paul is saying in verses 19 through 22, the beauty of the law is the law is a mirror. It shows you for who you are that you might see the sweetness, the majesty, the beauty of God's love in Jesus Christ and salvation by grace. You have not made yourself. You have not been made for yourself. So says Jonathan Edwards. There is nothing more fulfilling, nothing uh, sweeter, nothing more majestic than experiencing on a daily basis the promised love of God and the purposes of God revealed in Jesus Christ. So when God, and here I'm concluding, when God walked through the pieces, what he was saying is, if I don't keep my word, then may it be done to me as these animals. And years later, not because of our, or not because of God's failure, but because of our sin, that's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. God was saying in walking through these pieces, if I fail to keep this promise, this covenant, may I, the infinite become finite and cut off and killed. And so because of our sin, Jesus Christ was cut off. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was killed. He was crucified. No one no one loves you like God. And how do we know? Well, this is the point of the table. The promise of salvation by grace cost Jesus Christ his life. Now I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. And I want to say to you, today is a wonderful day in our culture because today is the Super Bowl. And what that means is millions of Christians or millions of people in our culture are going to be insane. They're going to be shouting and screaming like they haven't in months. So as we come to sing this last song, how dare we whisper? Let's shout. Let's scream. And God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have given us the word to change our lives, to deliver us from the issues that plague our marriage, plague our parenting, plague our employment, that jump up and bite us. God, would you use your word to change us, that we might live a life of worship because we are free because of what Christ has done. And all God's people said, amen. Let's sing. Stand up, church. Let's stand